So you have your Bibles open, and I'd invite you, even in your homes, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 4, 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael, and Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years. And he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. 
Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years. And he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. And he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You can be seated as we pray. Father, um, we're aware that we're a people who are needy. And one of our needs is to hear from you, to have you transform our minds so it's not conformed to this world. So, by your Spirit, through your Word, speak to all of us. We're inviting that now. Remove some of the distractions. Allow us to be able to engage and hear and listen well. But most of all, just let your spirit take these truths and plant them deep within us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The old Apostle John, weathered and worn, looked out on the churches of his day and issued this warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. That's 1 John 2.15. That's a good thing that churches today are immune to such temptations. We aren't so inclined, are we? We don't look out at the finer things this world has to offer and to begin to think that our life is really about enjoying such things. We don't see people or institutions making a name for themselves and crave deep down to make a name for ourselves. We aren't tempted to drink deeply of our culture blindly imbibing its values of sexual freedom and expressive individualism. We are wise enough to see the great accomplishments of, accomplishments of mankind and avoid being snookered into thinking that man is therefore great, able to save himself and his world. 
Of course, I say all of that with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. Of course, we need old John's warning as much today as ever. You pluck the toddler down in the middle of the checkout lanes at the superstore, and the toddler will reach for all the candy carefully placed at eye level. Pluck the Christian down in the middle of Western culture with all its power and ease and luxury and pleasure. And the Christian will be pulled, pulled, pulled toward the love of the world and the things in the world. Sometimes it's conscious. We know we're hankering for the world. Perhaps we're battling those desires, but we just so love the seeming lushness that the world promises. And sometimes it's not so conscious. The green in our eyes blinds us so that we don't even see we're being conformed to this world instead of being transformed. But either way, We need to hear from God. We need a corrective. Now, there are different ways to get a point across. Like old man John, we can just say it. Present the argument plainly. Don't love the world or the things in it. Another way is to tell a story. Perhaps about a rich man who stored up his grain and built more and more barns and then died. Stories can be effective. But sometimes you need to pull out the bigger guns. Sometimes what you need to get your point across is a good old-fashioned genealogy. I'm sure most of you resort to genealogies when you really need to make a point, right? Okay, maybe it's just me. Nope, not me either. It's just the Bible. But I think this old-fashioned genealogy makes the point very effectively. There's actually, you probably noticed, two genealogies in our passage, so let's just compare the two for a moment. The first genealogy is the line of Cain. It runs from 417 to 424, and it begins with Cain knew his wife and ends with Lamech and his three sons. The second genealogy is the line of Seth. It runs from 425 to 532. It begins with Adam knew his wife and ends with Lamech and Noah, Noah's three sons. Now there are other key similarities between these two. The only people to speak in each of the two genealogies are the two respective Lamechs. Both genealogies have notable Enochs. But these two parallel genealogies are actually quite different. Cain's genealogy begins with the founding of the first city and ends with the first poem recorded in Scripture. Now in between we find the founding of Agriculture and husbandry, the 
founding of music and the arts, the establishment of metallurgy and industry. The beginning city is named after a man, and the final poem is an ode to a great man. Now you think about wilderness Israel entering the promised land. That entire generation had lived a nomadic life. That's all they'd ever experienced, eating only the manna and meat that God had provided. They'd barely seen cities, let alone lived in them. And they walk into this lush land, harnessed by the strong hand of man. High city walls, cultivated gardens, dedicated musicians, delicious meals, well-built homes, commerce, farming techniques that made the raising of crops more efficient, and their eyes must have been as big as saucers. Perhaps they might have thought, so this is what we've been missing. They were like kids staring at the candy in the checkout line. And here we have Cain's line. All this greatness, all this beauty, all this harnessing of the earth from Cain's line. And you compare that to Seth's line. Not such an exciting line. No cities or Cultural contributions are emphasized. Maybe the most notable thing about Seth's line is that refrain, and he died. It's nondescript. Blah. Boring. And doesn't it feel that way sometimes? The riches of Egypt seems so much better than the suffering of Israel. The luxuries of Babylon seem so much better than the ignominy of the cross. My friends get to watch that. Their parents have less rules, less restrictions. The neighbors get to experience that. My coworkers get those benefits. Yeah, these genealogies are refreshingly honest. But these genealogies, in their honesty, tell a bigger story. They actually pull back the curtain on the way of Cain, and they pull back the curtain on the way of Seth. They tell us where each came from, its origin story, and where it's going. And that information is critical for us as we deal with the various yearnings that pull in our own hearts in various directions. So let's take a closer look at each genealogy to find out where it came from and where it's going. Starting with Cain's genealogy in 417 to 24. Cain's genealogy picks up exactly where Utah's sermon ended last week. Remember, 
God had peered into Cain's heart and therefore had rejected his sacrifice because Cain's offering was not offered in faith. And this caused Cain to seethe with hatred for his brother simply because his brother had done right before God. So God graciously comes to Cain and offers him two choices. He can repent and do right. If he does, he'll be accepted. He will know God's blessing. Or he can allow his anger to rage, giving sin full vent in his heart. Cain hears God's clear words and disregards them. He pushes away God's offer of forgiveness and mercy. He'd rather have his sin than admit he was wrong and gain peace with God. And so his darkened heart becomes darker. The raging inside him intensifies into a full-on boil. He calls his brother into a field, lays his hands upon him, and violently snuffs out his life. And as a result, he's cursed. He has to leave his family and wander. Before he leaves, proud Cain asks the God he's rejected for a bit of protection. Mercy. And God surprisingly grants it. So what's the first thing we're told Cain does after such mercy? Well, he has a son, but then he builds a city. And what does he name this city? Does he name it God had mercy? Or city of peace? Or house of God? No. No. There's no God word gaze. He names it after his son. He seeks to make a name for himself and his progeny. Now, founding a city city might seem innocent enough, but it's actually a defiant act because, remember, God had sentenced Cain to a life of wandering, and a city is the alternative to the nomadic life. Self-willed God-rejecting Cain is unchanged. The very first city was founded by a man thumbing his nose at God. That's exactly how sin works. God graciously exposes our hearts to show him, to show us that we're bent against him. And instead of softening and turning to him in repentance, We insist on handling it our own way. And as we do, we become embittered at the very God who loves us. We allow sin to grow, and it grows, and it destroys us. We become something we never thought we could be. And then, as if to prove to ourselves that we aren't as bad as we know we are, We commit ourselves to doing great things, to making a name for ourselves. 
all the while thumbing our nose at the very God we so desperately need. So what's the origin story of Cain's line? As you can see, it's not pretty. Listen to how Kent Hughes summarizes it. Cain left Eden full of disdain and anger toward God. The taste of anger, bitter and sweet mixed with blood, energized him. He would show God. He would show them all. His anger was electric and exhilarating. Molten energy shot through his veins. He was Captain Cain. If Captain Cain is the origin story, let's look next at where that story leads. It leads, it ends with licentious Lamech. Whatever vileness we found in Captain Cain, his protege far exceeds. The great genealogy has a dark underbelly. First, notice in chapter 4, verse 19, that Lamech brazenly takes not one but two wives. He rejects the pattern God established in Eden. It's the first record of bigamy in the Bible. And what we see is that the heart of man-made civilization from the very beginning is sexual immorality. Sex, that powerful, God-given force, is consistently seized by man-made civilization and leveraged in ways God never intended it to be. It was a hallmark of Captain Kane's genealogy and it remains a hallmark today. But Lamech's lechery isn't the worst of his faults. He's brazenly murderous. Also a romantic. Romantic Lamech decides to write a poem to read to his wives. Unfortunately, a week too soon for Valentine's Day, I'm sorry. But he gathers his two wives to hear his poem. And this is what he says. Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. Sense a bit of ego there? A little hint, men. Uh, don't start your Valentine's Day card like that. But it gets worse. I have killed a man for wounding me. I just stop there. This isn't good. It's not just you do me bad, I'll do you one worse. It's you do me bad, I'll kill you. And not only that, I will brag to my wives in a poem about my killing of you. It's brutal. But the next line's even worse. A young man for striking me. Those 
words young man really just refers to a child, a boy. He boasted, he's boasting about killing a boy. It's terrible. If one hallmark of man-made culture is sexual immorality, another is disregard for life, particularly innocent life. Miss Palm is atrocious. The last two lines of it unlock the riddle of its awfulness. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Well, do you remember who promised Cain's sevenfold revenge? Look back in verse 15. It was Yahweh who promised sevenfold revenge for any who murdered Cain. So Lamech here is exposing his true heart. He doesn't need no God. He isn't just God's equal. He's 11 times stronger than God. And it's fitting because as you read back through the great genealogy of Cain, you see the greatness of man. Nietzsche's Ubermensch is Superman. And this greatness is built on an utter repudiation of God, a thumbing the nose at him in the vilest of ways. It begins with Captain Cain, and it ends with licentious Lamech. Lamech. The curtain has been pulled back. Old John hunches over and says, Little children, do not love the world. Instead, see it for what it is. Now, let's compare that to Seth's genealogy from 425 to 532. The boring, ho hum non-descript genealogy, the genealogy where the most notable feature is the repeated refrain, and he died. What is the origin story of this genealogy? I'll tell you this much. It's no Captain Cain and his willful rebellion and boasting. It begins in agony. A woman bereft of her children Parents who've just been crushed by the news that their eldest son has murdered their second son. But in the face of this agony, Eve's eyes are on God. When Seth is born, verse 25 tells us Eve was looking to God. The promise of Offspring, even saving offspring, snake-crushing offspring, is not dead. Because God has appointed another offspring, Seth. And according to 426, Seth had a son. Now remember Cain's son, Enoch. He named a city after him, Enoch, a a trophy to man's self-sufficiency and pride. Well, Seth had a son too. 
that he named his son Enosh. Now, the Hebrew behind this E name bespeaks the weakness, frailty, and misery of man, as Matthew Henry explains it. In other words, it's the opposite of Enoch. It's a name that reflects how small we are. But the most notable aspect of the origin of Seth's line comes in the second half of verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Out of the agony, people cry out to God. Seth's line is birthed from a God-centered hope arising from pain and sorrow. I think that's why and he died is the backdrop for this generation because or for this genealogy because faith and worship and prayer arise out of our sense of our need and our agony. So emerging from this humble origin a new genealogy bursts onto the pages of scripture. You almost feel it bursting as you read chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. God is making clear, we are starting afresh. The promise that I've made, the promise of blessing is beginning. Here, something right is happening. There is an echo of the pre-fall story. So God created in his likeness, male and female, God blesses. It's clear here, God is the hero. God is on the move once again to restore Amidst the pain and heartache of mankind, God descends in grace and favor. That's why as we go on to read this genealogy, the only interruption to the repetitive cadence of the genealogy comes with Enoch in verses 18 to 24. Did you notice what was different from his listing? There was no, and he died. Like the prophet Elijah, Enoch was carried away without tasting death. It was like God wanted to give a little foretaste of the hope he's providing. So amidst the heartache and pain, there was one who did not die. And what else was different? Verse 26. Two, instead of saying he lived, it says he walked with God. And verse 24 repeats, he walked with God. Now that phrase is only used four times in the whole Old Testament. Twice here of Enoch, then once of Noah, and then once by the prophet Malachi. It conveys a, a close intimacy with the Creator. While Captain Kane's line is gallivanting about, building cities and inventing instruments, small Seth's line is walking with God. Faced with the brokenness and the heartache of the world, they turned in worship to their creator. They cried out to him. 
He recognized how small they were. And so God was near. He heard. He brought blessing. Do you know what the book of Jude points out about Enoch? It points out that he was seventh from Adam. What's the big deal about that? Well, do you know who was the seventh in Cain's genealogy? Lamech. Licentious Lamech. I think it's by design. Cain takes us to Lamech. Seth takes us to Enoch. That's the origin story. But where does Seth's line end? Where does small Seth's line take us? Well, it actually takes us to another Lamech in verses 28 to 32. And like in Cain's genealogy, only Lamech speaks. But compare this Lamech's words to Cain's Lamech. Look at verse 29, chapter 5. Out of the ground that Yahweh is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work, and from the painful toil of our hands. There's hope amidst pain. But it's hope rooted in a sovereign God who is over all of this. It's hearkening back to that promise of 3.15 that an offspring will undo the curse. Blessing, relief, instead of cursing. God's favor will again return. So the curtain here has been pulled back. Small cess, nondescript genealogy, is the one that God is using to bring about his blessing. It's the one that knows the blessing and favor of God And indeed, that is exactly what proves to be the case. Not only would righteous Noah be the way humanity could survive God's judgment against mankind's wanted wickedness, but it was this particular line that would give rise to the offspring who would ultimately crush Satan's head and defeat death. No more, and he died. And even if Cain's official line was wiped out in the flood, he became a prototype for all the godless, man-made versions of culture that would arise in wave after wave after wave from the dawn of time until today. You see, our world is every bit as much in need of God's saving grace today as it ever was. So, all right, we don't resort to genealogies when we want to make a point. But in this situation, the Bible does. And it's a profound point. As the sweet waft of the world fills our nostrils, it can intoxicate us. 
that can lure us in with all its promises, with its grand cities and beautiful movies and hilarious shows and stirring music. It's great accomplishments and it's unrelenting optimism in humankind, all of it, it's intoxicating. It's vacations, it's promotions and pleasure and seeming ease of life. Oh, how sweet it smells. But it's birthed in blood. It rages against its creator and therefore it can never truly satisfy. As history has proven, it will inevitably rot in the stench of its own sexual perversion and wanton disregard for human life. It is its own cancer. Beware the line of Cain. Beware the line of Nietzsche, Machiavelli, or Freud. Beware the line of John Lennon, or Oprah Winfrey, or Taylor Swift. Little children, do not love the world or the things in the world. There's another way, a better way, the way of Seth, the way of faith, the way of crying out to God, the way that sees the heartache and pain of this broken world and in response seeks a great God instead of an ubermensch, a superman. Such a path will typically be nondescript, like leaven in dough. It'll be made up of meek people who have no social, no impressive social media empires, no book deals or Cadillacs, just faithful, ordinary people who, out of their weakness, cried out to God and then died. But importantly, people who found God to be merciful, to be eager to save, eager to bless. You see, it's this second path that leads the way to Seth's son, to Noah's son, to Jesus who is the great proof of God's favor, whose death allowed death to lose its sting. Like Mahalalel, like Jared, like Noah, we will all die. But if we turn from our sin and our self, Instead, and instead embrace Jesus. If we, if we cry out to God instead of building monuments to ourselves, 
we will know the fullness of God's blessing. And then one day, free from death, we will enjoy the unending goodness of Jesus' reign forever and ever. Friend, we have two genealogies before us today. Captain Cain's genealogy of human greatness and small Seth's genealogy of hope in God. Which line do you choose? Will you pray with me? God, Thank you for making a point today with these genealogies. Work in our hearts. Protect our hearts from the allures of the world that pull at us, that can, can dupe us into thinking there's some worth and value there. May we be people who see our smallness and our desperate state and who look to you instead of making a name for ourselves. God, there are hearts that are hearing this message that are feeling the battle between their desire for either genealogy. I pray right now that your spirit would give them no rest until they, like Seth, cry out to you, humble themselves and surrender. Pray in Christ's name.